I'm not a big fan of the weight on the heels, to be honest with you. Um, I think it drives the wrong pattern home, you know. Um, and so I have the toe up on the way down. And then when we go to reverse the angle, we squeeze the toe, the big toe into the ground and drive up, which helps fire the glute, increase hip extension. In every case that I've done that, I've found that um, the bar moves faster. That was Coach Caldeeds talking about squat patterning and utilizing the feet, specifically the big toe, in building more explosive movement and athletes. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 80 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. That's right, episode 80. It's, uh, I don't know why that seems like a big landmark. You'd think 100 might be a little bit more substantial, but I don't know. It seems like uh, we've really come a long way on this show, and man, am I excited to bring on, for the second time, Coach Cal Dietz. Uh, Cal has been a massive uh, player in my own formation as a coach. Uh, the Triphasic Training, not only the original book, but Triphasic Training for Football, which he wrote with Chris Corfist, uh, they've had a huge, huge impact on my program writing and just kind of my... Uh, just my understanding of training variation, complex training. I've seen Cal speak several times. I've always walked away with great new ideas on training and performance. And uh, most everyone listening to the show, I'm sure, is pretty familiar with Cal. But he's been the head Olympic strength and conditioning coach for numerous sports at the University of Minnesota since 2000. He's consulted with uh, Olympic and world champions, as well as professional athletes in the NHL, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and professional boxing. He runs XL Athlete and is also one of the founders of the RPR, or Reflexive Performance Reset System. He's been a mentor also to dozens of up-and-coming strength and conditioning coaches in the field, such as uh, two-time podcast guest Matt Van Dyke. So in this episode, we're going to get into a lot of nuts and bolts. Uh, it could be called the nuts and bolts episode of Cal's views on speed training, power training, jump training, and some of the things we're going to really particularly get into are assisted and resisted sprinting. If you've seen some of Cal's French contrast complexes where he uses like the 1080 sprint, uh, we're going to get into a little bit about his ideas and thoughts on the assisted and resisted. We're also going to get into banded overspeed jumps. We're going to talk about coaching foot contacts and jumping and squatting like you just heard in that opening uh, talk. We're also going to get into a little bit lower leg strength training in the foot. We're going to talk about specific foot cues and squatting, the history and application of Cal's use of oscillatory isometrics, and a lot more. This was a really cool episode, and just hearing the range of Cal's methodics in the weight room, what makes his weight room sessions tick, how is he trying to get specific adaptations out of his lifts, how is he trying to get that extra inch on the vertical, that extra couple inches on the shot put throw, what specific portion of the athlete's range of motion is he trying to, is he trying to correct or improve, and how is he going to do it. So we are going to cover a lot of great stuff in this particular episode. With that said, let's get to episode 80 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast with Cal Dietz. Cal, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here, man. 
Thanks for having me, Joel. Appreciate everything, brother. Uh, it's always good to chat with you. Um, two coaches being able to sit down and and uh, talk shop a little bit. It's always fun. Yeah, I love it. I always love your insight. The things you're you're always uh, coming up with something new, interesting. The the way you're kind of dissecting the literature and and. Uh, uh, driving this industry forward. So a uh, little bit of a random hodgepodge of some questions to some sort today, but I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll make it uh, go in a, in a way that I think is real applicable. So the first one is how might you integrate resisted and, resisted and assisted sprinting uh, into weight room work? So uh, maybe talking French contrast there or, or complex training. What are some methods or ideas, whether you have a 1080 or a run rocket or an extra genie, uh, what are some some ways you might be looking at putting that into the weight? Yeah, room? sure. I guess uh, you know I, I think right after a uh, definitely like the way I would probably roll with it at first would be you know doing your heavy you know your heavier loaded back squat or or even sub maximal um, back squat then maybe the hurdle hops and then I would throw in a a resisted acceleration run with something like a 1080 or a sled and then uh which uh, is is more because really if you look at french contrast you have your strength then you have your speed strength and plyo with the, with the hurdle and then you have your strength speed with the acceleration or or squat jump you know what i mean and basically acceleration is is somewhat on the magnitude uh of a squat jump in regards to the uh, forces and then you would drop that resistance sprint and go back to some form of plyometric or or i do the accelerated ones from the ceiling usually in most cases and uh you know but but just with with that resisted accelerated running uh you, you know it's not just uh, i guess accelerated running um i think prime times would be uh, a good thing to use with that for posterior chain you know i think that's another variable joe that people don't often look at you know when i say prime times like I'm basically stiff leg uh, running. Uh, it's not bounding, but it's it's really stiff legged where you're using your hips to drive yourself forward because your your legs are pretty straight when you run. You know when when uh, Deion Sanders would do mm -hmm. the uh, the super you know the dance into the end zone. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know and things like that. Uh, if if and if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're young, then then maybe you might want to look at that. His highlight. We'll right put now. it in the we'll, <laughs> we'll throw it in the show notes. We'll throw it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, and then, you know, obviously assisted could be done at, at that time. Um, the question, you know, if you have enough room, I think you could do uh, some flying 90s in there. I, I don't, or uh, flying 20s maybe. Uh, but you'd have to have a lot of room and, and probably just one athlete, not sure, w would work in the team setting. And, and when I say that, I, I, I might, what I might do is pull them at 100%, Joel, and um, and then actually have them give like 95% effort. So then it wasn't as taxing on their nervous system. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm definitely, I think there's something to that, like getting towed fast, but you don't have to work as hard. It's almost like yeah. uh, like allowing the body to kind of put things in the, the proper, I guess I, I would say like rotation. That's something I'm learning. Like if you if you try a little less hard, sometimes you can access a little bit uh, more like the glute through hip rotation, or or just those subtle those subtle little timing uh, issues can come together a little bit better versus when you go all out. So yeah, I mean, yeah. If you had that thing. I think that'd be uh, that's a great strategy. And the space too. I mean, I don't think I can do that in my weight room, but that'd be or unless I had like a little high jump mat at the end and people could crash into it. Sure. Or something like that. You know, and, and it's all it's all based on you know, your, your weight room and what you have. And ideally in a team setting, is it going to work? I mean, you'd probably need a number of 1080 sprints or, uh, or something like that to, to pull and then the distance to do it in and then, you know, set it up so that you'd have to find their hundred percent. Uh, and then you would want to pull them at a hundred percent, but just have them give like a 95% uh, effort so that there's some resistance pulling them forward so it you know it's a little less taxing on the nervous system. I got that from Hank Cranoff, and then uh, and uh, obviously with uh, in, in Hank is like yeah that, that doesn't as tax the nervous system as much. So I've been very fortunate to uh, get a, you know exposed to coaches, but I think those are some of the key ones that I think I would uh, just the very the variability are endless, especially also with the top end speed. You know, Joel, I think. People have to realize like squats are more for acceleration and a hurdle hops more for top end speed. So 
how I would vary that up maybe is let's say for people ask me lineman French contrast. Well, if they're 300 pound lineman, I might do more box jumps. You know what I mean? Like small box, hit the ground, jump up onto a big box and walk off and then go to the next one versus, you know, cause those linemen, they don't really need a whole lot of top end speed, you know, and it's more acceleration. And, and uh, when I say box jump, I would drop off a little box, land in a deeper squatted position and then jump up onto a box versus on a hurdle hops. I'm going to land in a, the, the loaded position in the high position so that I'm working on joint stiffness quality. So you basically separate the two needs of the athlete with the type of exercises you're planning to use um, for what qualities you want. So if you're a distance runner, in French contrast, you, you would always land in that high spot. If you're a lineman, uh, I think you mix a running back because they need top end speed and they need acceleration. Same with receivers too, I suppose, but like a football or a throwing athlete, um, but you know, although my, th- my throwers, to be honest with you in track and field, they've been, um, they've, they've done everything for me. There's nothing I haven't done with those big men, but they have the strength levels to, to manage any type of plyometric, you know, even, a you know, 70, 80 inch drop to land in stiff legged, you know what I mean? In a, in a semi squat position. So, um, yeah, those, those guys are special. I, you know, you can't always judge your training off those guys. Yeah, I agree. I think it is interesting, like the idea with the knee, the different knee bends and the the plyos, because I I think a lot of coaches would say if you're doing a depth jump, the only way to do it is is with like very little knee bend. And but there's a lot of athletic positions, obviously, that are in the deeper squat. I, so would you ever? I I guess would it ever be a scenario where you would have both in a French contrast, like a, a deep yes. knee bend? And, oh, okay, you would. So you'd yeah, I definitely do that because you know, like a running back and a say in a, in a, or receivers, they they both need. Uh, top end speed to me I'm working on top end speed joint stiffness qualities uh, the stretch reflex in that position when I do a hurdle hop right and but if I do a let's say a small box jump off land into the deep position and jump up onto a big box or over a hurdle now with the big guys I usually just jump on a box so they don't land on the other side but basically it's a small drop off land in that deep squat position and you explode out of it into the uh, into up onto a box, a large box, you know, uh, 36 inches or more, and you're gonna go. Okay, that that's for acceleration plyometric, versus a top end speed. Uh, in my eyes, the, the hurdles they they work that more effectively. Okay, yeah, interesting, and and yeah, you kind of think of it like. Uh, what was an easy strength that Dan John talking about? Like there's the, the class four, or like the hyper specialist, and they only have a few joint positions and doing very similar things. And then the, the farther you get down towards class one is like the pure generalist. And so, yeah, football, you have a few different things you got to do. It's not all the, it's not all the same exact, it's not all the same movement. There's, there's certainly right. different aspects to it. And, and that does make well, sense. Mixing that together. It's like robust, robust training. Yeah. And, and really though, but, but like, I don't want to, I don't want to say that's all you would do because even if you're, let's say you're a lineman and you're, or you're a thrower, you know, as you're accelerating out of the bottom and that's what you're training with those drop off land in a deeper squat position, they explode up right away. You're training that deep position, but you also still need to apply force to the top, right? And to be explosive at the top, um, you have to realize if you've come out the deep squat position, you're accelerating at a high level. So you still need to be able to apply a lot of force very fast at the top to really get that snap at the end too. So all these things are important to everybody. You know what I mean? In regards to what you just have to realize what phase of training you're in. And by watching an athlete to me is, is what I'm able to differentiate. And I just watch the movement and then I'm like, all right, he needs more acceleration at the top in the snap. Uh, at the very end to really get you know the last three or four inches out of his vertical or whatever it may be yeah and that's the same thing with I guess assisted um, jumping as well where you I've seen the one where you have the guys in the deeper squat and they're uh, hooked into the bands from above is that the same principle there yeah yeah it definitely would be because you know people have to understand that um, let's say you you take your first step out of the blocks or starting to run there's a lot of load on there but by the, the third step may be the same movement, but, but Joel, you're so much lighter because you've got acceleration involved. So it's a completely different motor skill, even though it looks the same. The load is because a 200-pound body, I mean, you're ger- generating a ton of force on the first step. Well, the third step, you've already accelerated that body, and, and it, it's a much lighter load. But you're trying to apply as much force or well, more force to go faster. 
Okay. The, and that's where the bands came in, Joel, because I re, I began to realize with physics and, and the force plates we analysis, like after that third step, there was nothing much I could do in regards to mimic what was going on in the speed of the weight room. So that's why I knew I had to unload the human by hooking the bands to the ceiling or to the high racks and do jumps because I wanted to unload and get that speed of the of uh, of running in that third, fourth, fifth step. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I was actually doing some uh, some of my own kind of research into uh, that not too long ago about like the step times and the first step in a sprint's like 0.18 and then they they dropped. You know, next one's 0.16 and so you're kind of finding yeah that that sweet spot and that that toe off there and that's a good point that I I don't think I. Uh, I, I'm my dealings with like, with like jumpers and those types, like track and field jumper types, it's always like stiff legs, stiff legs, stiff legs. But even if you are bending your legs and you have an assisted setup, it's you're going really fast when you get to the top. That the top end or the the toe off end is is over speed, uh, and so there is yeah. in that small window there is some specificity. Yeah, for sure. That's where that's where I thought I, I I could use get some more some basically more out of the person that I was training. And be like, ah, oh, I can get a little bit more out of them. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Uh, so like foot contacts and plyos, and this is something that I think is interesting because a lot of people have different thoughts. And I think too, I in in my I've I'd say I have a pretty good handle on the the foot contact for a track jumper type type setup type vibe. But or for like what do you what do you for like a football player or like a a uh, team sport athlete, or or maybe even just in general, what's your ideas on foot contacts and plyometrics? How are you setting that up, and how are you having an athlete exit the the jump? Uh, what's your what your train your process there? Yeah, uh, you know, I the hopes are they, you know, actually let's take the example of the the accelerated band jumps. When you know when you come into my weight room and people that don't know what I'm thinking, they'll see my kids jump, and I'm actually coaching them not to let their heel hit the ground when they land. So when they come down and land, their knee goes in front of their toe because that's where they are in sports, right? Mm-hmm. And then the heel, the heel's never hitting the bottom, the ground, because I, I want that calf loaded, absorbing that force. Because if that if that heel hits the ground when they go to land to jump again, what happens is you have a leak of energy. That that is could have been stored in your Achilles, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then you're not you're not going to get the full energy return in that jump, okay? And then the neck, then also the foot is also a spring in this whole deal too. So that if that becomes completely unloaded, I don't feel that that's really what's going to take place in the in the uh, in the sporting world or make their their joints and all their tissues respond to the training that it's going to endure into the, or the forces that it's going to endure in the, the field. So, and then what happens after they land, you know, the fort, the foot, the foot, they, you know, midfoot strike or whatever. But then as you go through, you're always pushing through the toe at the end and the big toes bigger because it's, that's where all the force is supposed to go. Yeah. It's uh. It's it's interesting sometimes too. There was not too long ago I, I took a few it's coach's eye video of some of uh, my sprint swimmers and they were jumping and and just kind of ch- seeing like what people's exit points were off the what off of what toe and the guys who were jumping yeah. the highest uh, most of them were about similar levels of strength for the most part but the guys jumping the highest you could definitely see it was like first second toe and the the other some of the guys who couldn't do as much with the strength they had it was kind of like third toe fourth toe it's yeah. how they kick too right. though so it's well, kind of a little different but thing Joel you, you know if you look at it if you don't get that last little toe off of the big toe the the strong part of your foot right yeah it's like taping a shot. Like I tell people, I use this analogy where you tape your hand up to your wrist and you throw a shot put without snapping your wrist. Like my elite shot putter would, would drop 15 feet doing that. You know what I mean? And, and you're like, well, but if he stood there and just snapped his wrist with his shot put, he'd lose like it would only go two feet. But the catch is, is again, you've accelerated that 16-pound shot. So that snap at the end accelerates it that much farther but it's not that much force right but it's that little last bit that gives you all this little you know all this extra energy to jump higher or throw the shot farther so if you didn't have that you know just think about shortening that limb by let's say you roll out the side of your foot you know the fifth toe it's a shorter lever so you can't you can't produce as much force yeah that's that's true it does actually make me think about uh you know, like some athletes have a long big toe and some have a long second toe. And some people, some people would say, 
if you have a long second toe, then maybe that's the exit point too, because that's that was your longest lever. I mean, big toe obviously pressing well, too. Yeah, I think they work together, and, and I would rather have probably the longest long second toe because I think they work together. Yeah. Either or. Yeah, the big well, toe's well, got to be doing something. If you have a long second, yeah, <laughs> you're right. If you have a long second toe, Joe, then then the exit point would be a little bit different, but it's probably a good thing because then you got more mass and more and more uh, and more levers and a stronger lever. Yeah, that's a good thing to think of. I, I kind of I don't I've been obsessing about like foot like foot related athletic stuff the last few months, but I never really thought. Oh yeah, whatever is the longest, <laughs> like what you were talking about, the longest one might be the best. It's gonna that's gonna change people's exit point a little bit if they're I mean if they're probably um, jumping and, and running naturally, like kind of without you know as they as of they course. should they're in their natural mode. Yeah, of course. So uh, I, I like that a lot. That's that's great insight there. And uh, I so just in terms of calf and foot strength in general. So an athlete, they like what are some common issues you look for in lower legs? Like you a, a land based athlete like checklists, like what are some things you're right away looking for and what are some things you do to strengthen that? Well, um, I do my rocker, you know, the ankle rocker exercises uh, I got from Chris Corfus. And, uh, you know, basically we, we squat and we land with our knee in front of our toe trying to hold the arches of our foot up so it doesn't collapse. Um, I may actually, you know what, I, I make sure that their foot mobility is good. And, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of people have bones that are locked up in their foot, Joel. So again, that spring doesn't function correctly. Um, you need to find a good foot chiropractor. Um, actually, in, in some of the things I'll do, I'll just make sure that the, uh, the toe, I'll, I'll grab it, pull on it and move it a little bit like distraction, some distraction and, and you'll get many times a pop and people will feel walk on their foot and and feel that their uh you know their foot's more more loose you know and then obviously you know we do i use the rpr in the calf uh and the the tib and, and do a few things like that and and i'll actually rpr in between each metatarsal which is very very awful and painful <laughs> for the athlete right but that foot seems to function because it seems to be locked up in many cases because um, you know, there's so much pressure on that foot and those bones seem to get stuck and, and maybe, uh, jammed a little bit together when they, and they don't, and, and when they're jammed, they don't function. What is there? There's there 29 or 32 bones, 20, you know, either vice versa bones and joints. I think it's 29 or 32 in the foot. And if they're not functioning correctly, that, that spring isn't working optimally, you know, and that's where, cause if you think about it, where's the hip and knee, it's really pushing to the foot. And then the foot causes the displacement to go to, to propel you in the direction you really want to go. So if your foot's in front of you, your hips pushing towards your foot and your knees pushing towards your foot. And then the foot allows you to plant and move in the direction you need to go. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I've, I've always found that interesting with like the locked foot. Uh, idea and I know I remember this was a track DVD that I was watching like probably almost 10 years ago and it was uh, Keba Tolbert uh, it was like a warm-up assessment and he had all these warm-up exercises that he would watch athletes do and used each one to assess like what treatment the athlete might need and he was talking about if you're how to tell if your foot was locked and I just like I've just never I don't think I've ever gotten a good coach's eye for that like what it looks like or what athletes will say uh, is there any is there I mean is there any like basic kind of giveaways or things to kind of be like, Hey, maybe you should, you know, go see the, uh, sport chiropractor for that foot or, or do some toe distraction yeah. or something like that. What are some, well, some things there? One of the things that I look for is the fact that like, if that knee goes in front of the toe and you're pushing it forward and that arch collapse pretty quick, I noticed that that's a problem. That that's also a weak link, which also, if that arch collapses, a lot of people, you know, you go valgus and a lot of people, mm -hmm. when your knee collapses in, a lot of people were like, oh, it's the glute med. Well, it's two things. It could be the glute med or it could be the arch collapsing because that will cause the same thing. And I think so many people say, oh, the, you know, uh, the, the glute med. I'm like, well, yeah, but if you test the glute med, it's really strong. But, mm -hmm. but look at this arch when they land, like it collapses and they have flat feet. So, um, you know, I, I just think and I, honestly, I just actually check it. 
I try to move their 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 uh, just do some distraction RPR between each metatarsal, and, and just try to. And you know, if you're if you're if you're skilled enough, if you're an athletic trainer or something, you can definitely go on YouTube and and look at some foot uh, things. There's self adjustments to your foot too on YouTube that that you can have your athletes do if if you're uh, if you obviously if you don't if you're not allowed or it's out of your your spectrum. But you know, ultimately, I I would and, and really if there's one thing that you could work on feet. Um, I don't think it's a big issue. You're not going to make any, you know, life, you cause any life-changing damages to and be gentle and, 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 don't, and don't force it, obviously. And just really the distraction to me is, is definitely a, uh, a huge tool. And just move them around while you're trying to, to extract them. They can do it themselves, uh, but sometimes it's just easier if you, uh, if you work on those toes. Yeah, I, I'm in total agreement with you too about the whole like the glute med always gets blamed. Like it gets blamed for everything. And and when the right. foot, it's it's amazing just to have athletes just do like little quarter squats when they're you cue the feet versus when you don't, and just see how quickly those knee mechanics will snap together. <laughs> right. Well, and too, Joe. At the same time, if you if you grab the if the toes grabbing the ground, so like one of my cues obviously is has always been grab the toe, and and I got lucky with that one. I didn't before I even understood foot function years ago. I've been coaching that for like two decades. Um, I just grab the toe, and it also helps fire the glute, right? Uh, the Babinski reflex. I think it's all tied into that when they check the baby. You know what I mean? Doing yeah, the yeah. Whole, yeah, and 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 you're just sitting here going, well, if you if you grab that toe into the ground, then if you, you know, that arch will stay, if you use it hard, like that, that, I think we get so weak because we're in shoes. It's an interesting concept, no doubt. I, uh, so one thing I actually, uh, before I get to the next point, which I was uh, really interested in the oscillatory weightlifting, you had mentioned, uh, cueing the arch, making sure an athlete has tension in the foot of the feet. And, and that's something I've been really interested in for some time. Uh, is there any, what's the specific cue or process that you're looking at for an athlete's foot when they're squatting. So on the way down, I I actually have them pick their toe up. Okay, um, I'm not a big fan of the weight on the heels. To be honest with you, um, I think it drives the wrong pattern home. You know, um, and so I have the toe up on the way down, and then when we go to reverse the angle, we squeeze the toe, the big toe, into the ground and drive up, which helps fire the glute increase hip extension in every case that I've done that I've found that um, the bar moves faster um, and I like I said I have one of my presentations on YouTube going hey the bench press moves faster when you squeeze that bar uh, that big toe down and I only checked it in a hundred athletes and all hundred move the bar faster when they squeeze their toe use their hips to bench press you know what I mean <laughs> and 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 it's like that that's the most natural pattern because if I actually in the you know if I'm going to stand here and push somebody in nature, if I don't if I don't if my toe doesn't grab the ground and my glutes don't fire, I can't stabilize. I'm going to push somebody and get pushed and, and I'm going to push myself back versus pushing them or some object. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the natural sequencing that should happen. You know, and I've explained it on my YouTube page uh, numerous times, which um, I think is. Uh, is one thing, and, and look, all these things, Joel, I, I just test and retest and see what happens. And I know that some of the things I say are, are different than what the scientists actually believe, but, you know, a scientist will email me, what about this and that? I'm like, yeah, but have you ever worked anybody out? And he's like, well, no, but, but I'm <laughs> like, I know, right? I've only done it, you know what I mean? I've only, thousands of athletes have came to the University of Minnesota, and uh, we, we ran these programs and these concepts by and gotten great results, and we've tried it other ways and not gotten whether it's within the workout, within one experiment of the workout, or it's long-term. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, results and, and being able to, even like in, in the scope of one session, if you can find something that gets you a result in one session, uh, that's always the stuff I, I get really excited about, just a simple intervention. Did it work? Did it not work? Uh, and then go back to the old way and see, yep, they got worse. Oh, they're <laughs> back to their premium. And I'm going back and forth like 10 times, and the athlete's going, when can I stop? Because I just want to do the one that makes me the better. I'm <laughs> like, all right, we're stopping. Let's go. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's how we're going to do it. <laughs> you know, it's just – it's 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 crazy. I mean, you, you know, you throw stuff out on the internet to educate people, and, and sometimes you can get scrutinized. But but often it's people that, that you know, that haven't uh, – that haven't ever used used the the methods or really trained people. I mean, you know, you got people out there 
writing to be experts about some equipment that they have and you find out that they only had it actually a week and a half or 10 days or, or two weeks and now he's yeah. the world's expert on it you're going what wait a minute i mean i have I, I had my Omega Wave a couple of years before I really talked about it. You know what I mean? And, and some of these pieces of equipment I actually have now, um, I, I'm not really going to mention that I have them in, at least for another six months to a year before I really fully understand them. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I mean, it's definitely easy to to, to get in, like a new toy, so to speak. It'd be like, oh, yeah, look at this. Like it, it certainly takes a while to really get used to the – the not only the function but also kind of the margin for error and the the test and retestability and right. those types of things well then also just because you bought something from a company and that it's their product they don't always know how to use it the best way let's be honest with you so if you if you get a run you know 5000 tests on people you might know more than the people selling the device because they've only run a hundred or so. You know what I mean? So, and then question everything, test and retest it. You know, um, see what happens. Like, you know, like okay, I use my Omega Wave. I know what somebody looks like after they've ran a marathon because I went over and I measured them. You know, I know what somebody looks like after a chemo treatment. I went over and I measured them. You know, I know when the immune system's struggling and dysfunctioning because I've checked people when that happens. So, um, you know, there's a lot to learn, uh, you know, just things that you can never stop checking and, and testing. I'm fortunate that I have a job where I'm able to do that as a coach. Oh, yeah, no doubt. That's some, what, part of the fun of uh, if you are in a capacity where you have athletes that you can do little different experimentations on and 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 learn some new things that's always where it's at i mean it's obviously you never want to <laughs> you never want to be a little too crazy but you always want to no. uh but it's it's fun to see find new ways that things that work and uh, speaking of which i actually i was wondering where did you where did you get oscill the oscillatory weightlifting that people will see in like especially the peaking yeah. phases and those things from where what's the history of that with Keldeets? um you know what? I I did get to spend like three and a half days in in Colorado with Mel Siff at his home, and that's where you know because he mentioned it and uh, he mentioned it in the uh, in the super training and, and him and I chat a little bit about it. But uh, uh, he just briefly went over it. But I I always was fascinated. Like man, there's because like look, just doing three or four inch range of motion in the weakest part of your bench press to me, I can get more volume out of that that spot where they're the weakest is what I've always found. And let's, I, I tell people, look, if, if let's say you can do uh, four sets of four at 80%, full range of motion bench press. I'm only hitting my weak spot tw uh, 16 times. Okay. But if I spend the same amount of time and I can do um, 12 reps of oscillatories in that weak range of motion, for four sets, instead of 16, I, I'm now pushing 48 reps in my weakest spot. And then everyone's like, the, the, the internet police go, oh, what about full range of motion? I'm like, look, my, my, my throwers, if, if, if they bench 400, I put four boards in there, they can bench like 480. So I only need to worry about this little bit right here. That's what I'm worried about. Because now if they go 400 here, and I can get them to 450, they'll still finish 450, I promise you, on the lockout. You know what I mean? And that's for strength. And the speed stuff really is about, you know, uh, it all, for me, it just went back to the, uh, I think it was Media did the research and found that the, the world class athletes would separate them. It's not how fast they contract their muscles, it was how fast they relax them. And I'm like, how can I train the relaxation phase? And it just kept going. And then the oscillatories were, full contraction and I, I instantly try to pull the bar back to me and shut that muscle off with basically the antagonist concept of Sheraton's law where if, if your biceps contracting hard your tricep will relax you know and just to try to turn that muscle on and off and I'm like that has to be a trainable skill has to be a trainable skill that relaxation which whether it's done you know and I know there's some people out there that will argue with me on the sarcoplasmic reticulum and the mitochondria and, and, and everything saying, hey, um, you know, if you build more muscle or mitochondria in the sarcoplasmic reticulum and, and, and then the muscle, it'll relax faster. But but if that was the case, then the slow twitch muscles would, would re contract faster and relax faster, but they don't. You know what I mean? Because they have more mitochondria. 
Oh, okay. So it, it, yeah, so it's it's it, to me it's more of a nervous system, and, and and the nervous system is so dynamic and trainable. You, you know that uh, that's why I think the high the high speed oscillatories using like three to four inch range of motion on a bench press in the weakest position, shutting the muscles on and off is so athletic and so beneficial. Yeah, with, with the oscillatory stuff too, is there any movements that you, you think it's particularly good for? And then on the, the flip side, do you think there's any that's just kind of awkward for that you've tried out? They're like, yeah, that was, that was not the best thing. Oh, to yeah. Do. I mean, you know, like a big dynamic movement sometimes isn't good. I find this, the less dynamic something is, the better it is uh, for the oscillatories. But again, like bench press seems to be good. Squats, uh, it's okay. I would rather do like a oscillatory heavy pitch shark. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, versus a safety bar. The safety bar seems to sway all over in the trunk. But a pitch shark's ideal. Um, a single leg safety bar or a like a hex deadlift split squat maybe. It, it seems to be good. Uh, I I actually really like the hex banded. I, I put bands on the floor, hook them to my racks, and then use a uh, – you can actually use a hex deadlift and hook them to that. And then they'll go up and down in the bottom. Pretty. That's a pretty interesting one. Turning muscles on and off. So, um, I really like that. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. That makes really good sense. Like a, a pitch shark or a, a hex split yeah. over like a barbell back squat with the bar. Kind of. It just makes sense. Like there's less. That you don't have to worry about the torso as much in, in those other situations. Like the the, right. the bar on the back. Right. And then even with the arms, Joel. Like to make sure your arms are functioning and the bicep works in conjunction with uh the shoulder and the triceps like we'll, we'll take bands hook them to under your feet and grab the band and we supinate on the weight up as fast as possible and then we uh pronate on the way down to activate your tricep i mean your arms are flying like you can barely like they're just a blur right but it's adding resistance and it's basically the same thing if you do triceps where instead of standing on it you're hooking it up to the ceiling or on the rack and you're doing the same movement where supinating up and, and, you know, pronating down when you're doing your triceps. And, and when you do that fast, it actually, whether you're doing biceps or tricep, it works your muscle because you're moving the, the, the ball or the, uh, the band in your, your arm at such a high rate. And if you want to just play with it, put a one pound dumbbell in there. And it's crazy the stretch reflex that happens with just a one pound because you're moving and accelerating at such a high level. While you're holding the band, you put a one pound dumbbell in there and, and you're doing it and it's crazy. Yeah, I that reminds me of my 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 first week it must have been or first couple of weeks uh, as a as an actual full time uh, D one collegiate strength coach. Two of the other guys I was working with were doing this. I don't even remember what it was called. It was like 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 the hundred, two hundred, or it was basically like you did like ten heavy tricep ropes, but then you did twenty like fast overhead banded or or like with the out of the out of the lat machine. But basically, you mix heavy triceps with just as fast as you could, and apparently. It would get you really huge, and I actually do remember really liking that workout. <laughs> uh, the guy who who passed that down to the two coaches that taught it to me apparently had huge arms and swore by it. Oh, and, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So of course it's yes, of course because of, you know. But I, I yes, the bro science uh, that, that works its way down the chain. But well, I, it does theoretically, it's working the fast twitch fibers. So you know, if you do your if you do your arm workout, typically it's more slow twitch, right? But when you do something like with that, either you got to get super heavy or you can go high speed stuff and get the fast switch fibers. That's the whole. I mean, that's your thinking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt. Uh, I, I really liked your, your point there on the, the oscillatory and, and the stuff that does seem to work the best, too. And, and it does. It just makes such good sense. And, and I really like those movements. Uh, I'd like yeah. to talk too about another kind of thing I think is a little bit unique to I mean, it's not not totally unique, obviously, but something I think you do that a lot of people don't do is like put like uh the the oc1 and and two or the the low and high end position training what are like the benefits of each of those with the muscle and the short and long position well uh, actually you know if it goes back to the plyometrics that we were talking about that end range if so if you're on the bench press and you're a thrower um if you accelerate the ball out of the bottom where the ball's right beside your chest but you never you never learn to keep accelerating and that's where this oscillatory at the top range of motion can be a pretty effective tool because you're just really trying to finish off that movement you know and keep applying force at a very high level now i, I don't think it would work well with heavier loads joel but but i think it would work well with a lighter load and banded better for like a shot putter you know what i mean 
So you're really just hoping to get the most out of that. Because if you really think about it, let's say you have a really strong shot putter, but he's a slow twitch kind of guy, but he's super strong. And when he accelerates that ball coming out of the back of the ring with his chest muscles, it's probably accelerating pretty fast, but, but he can't keep accelerating it as his hands get farther away from his body because he doesn't have that fast twitch fiber that the other guy beside him that's not as strong has. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So at that very end range, like I think he needs more reactive work with those OCs to really focus on snapping that ball out there for performance. And that's really sport specific and I think sport dependent on uh, what you would do it for. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like it's very, very special strength or specialized exercises oriented and probably some things too that like, you know, you talk about the integration of strength coach and a sport coach that a lot of sport coaches either could be part of the process or should a lot of things could know themselves or should know themselves, I guess uh, you would say in the perfect world there in relation to their own event. Well, and also like to me, it's it's like, well, well if you got a thrower and he, and he has all these qualities, but he just doesn't throw far. <laughs> Like, what is it? There's there's something missing in that chain of events. And maybe the thrower's coach or the coach, sport coach, could identify. You know what I mean? If we actually analyze more things, whether, you know, hey, he accelerates the ball the same as the 60-footer or 65-foot shot put guy. But at the end, his ball, before it leaves the hand, is not moving as fast. Well, now we have to address that and find what training method will work for that. And that's really the ultimate individualization of everything, right? Um, You you hope that – I wish at times I could be a sport coach, but, you know, I'm not going to go back and relearn all these things that a sport athlete needs. You know, I might pick one thing and that would be it. But but, uh, uh, I just need a good coach that understands things or at least let me educate you a little bit so you can make some decisions or give me some information back that I can make this athlete better. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, if you were to go back in time, though, time machine, you were a sport coach. What what would you do? Hockey throws? Uh, Man, I I, I, my my love was football. I, I would probably. In a team setting, it'd definitely be a football coach. Uh, probably O line. Took a, I, I took a lot of pride in playing it. You know, uh, a job where nobody really notices you and mm-hmm. mess, unless you mess up because you made a great block. The running back standing in the end zone is one thing. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think I mean the, the mentality. I, I I do like the thrower's mentality of training. You know what I mean? So any 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 thrower's coach, a shot put, you know, discus, whatever. I'd love to been one of those. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, the way I hear you talk about the throws a lot of times. I, I think, oh yeah, I would have been good, good, good throws coach. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I love that. That's that's awesome, man. Uh, so what, next question, and uh, still along the line of speed a little bit. Uh, but what's your take on uh, hamstring training for injury prevention and speed? And particularly, is there anything new you've been integrating? Because I know it's like the what people are saying kind of changes almost every year uh, to a degree. And so anything, anything new on, in, in terms of ideas on hamstring training? You know what? I, 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 uh, I got something from Dan Fichter, uh, an exercise that I didn't know if it worked the hamstring that well. Uh, but it, I call it my, uh, so basically I put like two really large black bands across the, the bottom rung of my rack. So I, I would say they're probably, two feet off the ground and then what my athletes do is they'll lay on their back and they get up on these bands so that they're like two feet off the ground their feet and then their shoulders are on the ground and what they do is basically straight leg kicks and it is extremely fast actually i have it on my youtube page if you want to maybe look it to the notes hook it to the notes but and and i wasn't sure that it was like that good of action i knew it was fast so like for peaking i'm going okay i like this for peaking right because it's you know um i do the typical glute ham reverse hyper um rdls you know things like that but this i like this exercise now that was for the peaking phase then what i did joel was i realized that if you do that one legged it's a more powerful movement. So my process was then I would go single leg during my power phases of this exercise. And then the speed phase, I did double leg. And that was pr- – it's, it's pretty amazing. And then when we got the Athos shorts and we threw it on the athletes, the EMG shorts that uh, you just slip on and it's remote EMG, 
I was like, this was a hundred, this was a huge reaction. Like this, this was recruiting some serious gluten hamstrings. It was pretty crazy. I didn't think it would recruit that much, but it it was around one of the best exercises for recruiting. Really? I've I've had to try it. I actually have Athos shorts myself. So I've, I've, (laughs) I've been using them for probably at least the last three weeks. So not long enough to draw any serious conclusions but uh i've sure. love using them in the meantime and and yeah. i'll i'll try that uh because my well, hamstrings you know are terrible and everything on those <laughs> right well you know what joel the, the the big thing i think and it it's it, i don't know if your brain's recruiting your brain's not recruiting that much activity but when your leg comes up and you and you reverse the action the recruitment level there at at, at the spinal level is pretty high you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're getting reflex action into the movement, and that's upping the upping the MVIC. Yeah, for sure, and the, the paraspinals and everything, and, and it's like I don't, it doesn't make it to the brain, so the brain's not really truly sending a signal. But I, I think that happens a lot, right? We know that um, in sports, especially fast sports, that that reflex. So, and then you know the you know I think there's some research out now that like during the heavy centric phase that the brain is actually more active. When just because uh, just to give you a brief understanding is that so if you're moving fast, it's a it basically is a spinal cord reflex. Right. And then if you're moving slow with heavy weight, the brain overrides it or something overrides the 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 reflex because and then the brain becomes more active during the heavy eccentrics. So, I mean, that's kind of the difference between the two. In a nutshell, I mean, there's some extensive research out on that. I might be able to slide that to you, so so people could see that article. Actually, I'll I'll do that. So yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic. I I would like that. I know um, that exercise too is making me think. I've seen people do one where it's like you're 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 kind of uh, it's almost like you're sitting on a physio ball, but you're not sitting. Your your back is on the ground. It's a similar motion with the hamstrings, like kicking it with your heels as fast as you can. Yeah, uh, you know what? I do the same thing. Um, so, so I do it straight legged with your shoulders and the only thing touching the ground is your shoulders and then your feet are up on the band and you're facing the ceiling. And the other one is I pull them in close and they actually do it and I'll send both links. They actually do it with their uh, hamstring or with a bent knee. Yeah, I, I'd imagine just like, because uh, I've done the one with the, the bent knee, but I, I could feel like the one with the straight leg would be really, really powerful on the hamstring. Like that would be a lot more of a, yeah. a force on the hamstrings. And I, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to throw the shorts on and try that. Even compared yeah. to, I wonder what it even looks like compared to all oh, it's sprinting. I wonder if it's possible to have a higher hamstring recruitment there than even sprinting for some people. Yeah, my, my guys that are uh, that are using the shorts are all in hockey, so I can't test them now. But you know, in the spring, I'll, I'll, I'll if you tell me otherwise, I'm going to test it. If you haven't done it by spring, I'll do it in the spring. <laughs> uh, all right, yeah, yeah, sounds good. I'll let you know. I know those hockey guys. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, they have a totally different muscle layout uh, for for sprinting probably than a, than a typical athlete. But are they they pretty pretty decent? They're terrible. <laughs> it's horrible. Right. I mean, their their running forms horrible because it's the, the, the you know they don't practice that skill. Now uh, they do get better, but you know, Joel, some of the things that I have done over the years is I've 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 actually some of these running drills that I'll implement, like uh, I've seen you do or or like Chris Corfus. My kids are poor runners, and then I just implement the uh, some of these drills, and I don't coach them on running, and I watch what makes them get better. Um, like the mini hurdles with the overhead stick. Uh, what's, what's Chris call that? I'm sorry. Um, wicked drills or people call that wicked drills, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Mini hurdles or wicked drills. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow, these guys, no, I know they're running and they'd get better anyway, but I'm just telling you, I'm pretty impressed with how fast that pushes their, their running ability. And like, I, I'm, I'm talking, I just do some basic sprints about six every day and before my workout. And I'm like, wow, these guys get better fast doing that drill. Yeah. And a few others, you know what I mean? And I, I can't, and it's not the only thing that fixes the problem. And we're talking fixes a lot of problems in some really bad running form. You know what oh, I'm yeah. saying? So I'm not saying it's going to really affect a world-class sprinter. Like that's the last, you know, it's like my friend uh, with, with Hank. Um, Hank is what coached uh, 17 Olympic 
champion and medalist in the world game championships and and um, maybe even more than that, hundreds in the European championship. But, you know, I show him some running form problems that I deal with. And he's like, I've never, ever seen this. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, because everybody you've coached, Hank, is really fast. And that's why you haven't seen it. So, so you know, I mean, sometimes that's, that's, a, good, that's a good point, I think. If you want to learn from the world-class people, that's great. But, but, you know, if you go to a high school coach that really knows what he's doing, he's going to fix – more of your running flaws that that that's more related to you unless you train olympic medalists mm-hmm. than than the olympic medalist coach let's be honest oh yeah 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 i think especially yeah the sprint technique is very uh i think there's there's a lot of differences between those guys you see at the olympics and just the everyday athlete running a lot and it's it's you could you could almost watch the differences for days and still not be able to write them all down <laughs> Joel, I, I, I was at the Olympic trials one year. Oh, man, when was that? Oh, oh two. Was there been Olympic trials? Oh, four. Out in, uh, I think, in California. And, and, and I was at the 100-meter start at the finals there, and the ground shook when those guys took off. You could feel the vibration in the ground, and I'm just like, the power that, that is there. That That's an amazing feeling and sight right I mean, yeah that's yeah awesome. man i would love yeah i would love to be able to go to something like that someday hopefully someday but uh that's yeah. that's such a cool thing wow it was amazing yeah yeah so so speaking of speed too kind of on that level i've heard you say this i i, I steal it in a way because i use kind of the same idea sometimes uh but like when people say so-and-so athlete has weak glutes so what does this what does that really mean <laughs> what does it really mean if someone has quote-unquote weak glutes what I guess what it means to me, I mean, to me, honestly, when I start checking them, uh, usually what happens is they got some tight, tight hip flexors, right? Because if you, if you look at this, let's go. So th- what I've basically boiled it down to, and I'm just going to explain in my in my basic terms, so everybody from uh, you know in a PT may get upset with me. I'm using basic terms, but Joel, if that ham, let's say that that psoas is is shortened. And tight. Well, if it's always tight, then the antagonist needs to be relaxed, right? Then that, to me, if I got that psoas to the right spot and released it, then the glutes actually many times turn on themselves. Because if this natural tension is tight of the, of the psoas, the glutes are signaled not to be as active, so that could lead to weak glutes. Now, the other scenario is that muscle is so lengthened and weakened because there'll be a some point where you actually that psoas may not stay tight and it fatigues itself and then it lengthens. Well, if you actually muscle strength test, reaction t- reactive tests, muscle test any of the, that that psoas any of those states, you can't get a full contraction because if it's le- if it's if it's too lengthened and weak the actinomycin head, you, you don't get the activity, right? You, you just They just can't bridge. If it's short, it can't get a full contraction. Only when that muscle's in the sweet spot will you get a full and complete contraction, right? So then if you can get that muscle in the sweet spot of the psoas, then the glutes are tied to it. And the glutes often just help themselves turn on. Now, I do it through RPR, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, and my biggest thing too then is, I think I just saw some research out there where 90% of our, our population has dysfunctional breathing patterns. And my big thing with this is if if the diaphragm actually is, is tied to the psoas through fascia, if your dysfunctional breathing pattern, your psoas isn't your, – your hip flexor is not going to be working correctly. So when I've actually just – been fortunate enough to get the patterns correct and how, how I do it with RPR is that our – what I've seen is, you know, there's, there's all these coaching methods out there for the breathing, but until you release the tissue and allow the tissue to function correctly and the diaphragm to release and not be, you know, spasm, then what happens if you can release that, then the body will kick into its natural breathing pattern that, which then can get the psoas to lengthen to where it's supposed to be. And then the glutes actually turn on. So yes, just by getting the breathing, corrected and and then doing some rpr on the psoas and the glutes i've been able to get these glutes turned on because here's my thing joel 
if if people have these glutes, let's say your psoas is tight and the glutes are, are shut down because of that, and you do all these glute exercises in the weight room to turn the glutes on, and people say, yeah, I actually feel that. Well, you feel it because your glutes are weak because the psoas is tight. And then they go out and walk 8,000 steps, Joel, and they don't have the, the glutes firing with those 8,000 steps. You've, you've wasted their time in the weight room because you didn't fix the problem. You may have got the glutes to activate in the weight room even with the exercises. But that's 60 or 80 reps at the most you get did right. But then the 8,000 walking mm-hmm. is completely messing it up again. Uh, it, it's mind-boggling. And so to me, it's like you need to get them working correctly why they walk, why they do the 8,000 reps out in the normal day life, right? And my big beef with that is, you know, it's often said, hey, glutes are weak and their core is weak together. Well, I'm like, all right, I don't want to spend all night on this, Joel, but what is the core connected to? It's connected to the hips. So when people, if you actually test their core strength, you realize many times when it's super weak, it's because the hips aren't working correctly and you have dysfunctional patterns and there's something wrong in there. And when you get the hips functioning correctly, the core is now more stable because the base of the core is stable. And now the core can activate and turn on the way it's supposed to, but it's usually locking up because it needs to stabilize and it's dysfunctional. That's, that's in the nutshell. I mean, uh, that's a two day course if you really want to teach it in about two minutes there. So um, I, I, I know it's tough for people to wrap their head around a little bit, but I've found that these weak glutes, so many people uh, have to realize that there's some other dysfunction that are usually causing that problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that is such a great point. It's what it all boils down to is it's not uh, where, where the problem is, it ain't, I guess. I think Perry Nicholson said some, said something <laughs> like that. That's <laughs> or, a good call. Or quoted somebody on that. He quoted somebody. I remember talking to him in the podcast. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely great to think, and I know, yes, you could definitely go for a few, uh, you know, a, a few days seminar on that exact topic. And I've, I've certainly experienced, you know, the power of having, uh, you know, the the glute psoas core breathing reset. And yep. yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a powerful thing. But it's not just, it's not just the glutes for sure. And so, uh, I always, I've always found every athlete who I've heard has weak glutes, or it's always something else. It's. Um, so I, right. I, I I really like that answer. The groots are a reflection of what there's something other else going on. You know what I mean? And Joel, people people have a hard time realizing the compensation patterns and you know how fast the human body can compensate, right? And the best athletes seem to be able to compensate. Well, I, like I test this guy's glutes, maybe they are bad, but he's an elite runner, and you're like, yeah, his glutes are bad, <laughs> but he like, but look at his hamstring, how tight it is, and like. Your hamstring gets tight, right? Yep. Well, well, this hamstring's doing a lot of extra work that it shouldn't be. But he's the best, one of the best in the world. I'm like, yeah, but but he's eventually going to break with his hamstring problem, you know. And they're the best. They're the best people. They're survivors. Like Joel, if you're running from that, you know, proverbial lion, as everybody uses the example, and you sprain your ankle, your body will will change its gait in the very next step to be able to keep running. Mm-hmm. And that's a compensation. <laughs> But that's for survival, and the same thing happens in daily life. As you know, if you can't move, you can't find food and water, so you won't make it. Yeah, I agree on that. Uh, it is, yeah, the best athletes are definitely the best compensators too, in many ways. Obviously, sometimes to a fault, like you were just saying. But in uh, in in many cases, we see athletes who've just been able to very skillfully compensate their way to a particular movement. No question. No question. Uh, last, uh, last couple questions here for you, yep. Cal. Uh, so overcoming isometrics, I'm kind of curious how this goes into your isometric phase. So overcoming, you're pulling a bar against an immovable resistance. Um, is there any favorites you have here at what stage are you going to be using something like this with athletes, uh, in like an isometric phase? Uh, what, how does that fit into the grand scheme? Um, you know what? I, uh, I think for me, it's, it's really, um, I, I do like the adrenaline release. So when you release that adrenaline for training, like I'll, I'll actually get back to what, why I use it, um, on certain days. But what, what happens is I, I think I, I don't always use those in triphasic 
the the you know basically the format where the first two weeks we we do eccentrics and the next two weeks isometrics. I'll I'll do the isometrics, but they're holding their own. Um, because I think the amount of stress that you're under, it's it's a very, very high load. And I, I just think it pushes the limits. Now, what I would do it when and where I would do it, if you have a weak point or you've identified some something weak in an athlete, I think you can add overcoming like, okay, I know this guy's really got to get his bench up. Okay, it's four weeks before the conference and he's a shot putter. I need to get his bench up. We're going to maybe do these twice a week for two weeks, and then we're going to get back to the normal concentric. But I think, you know what, you can do it on a needed basis, and I think they're very, very effective for strength gains, in my opinion. Um, but it's, it's again, for strength. It's not very sport-specific, so you have to get away from it in regards to an, an event that you're performing for, like in a track and field, you know, if you're coming back into the league championships. Um, Cause they can, I think that adaptations to those are so, so strong that they can actually interfere with the motor skills of trying to throw the ball farther or the disc or, or running faster. Now, the other way I use them, Joel is on like, even uh, where I'll grab a single leg, the, this single leg deadlift, right. That I do into the rack where they'll grab, it's like a split squat deadlift, where, and they pull up, and my athletes will do it for like three to five seconds, and they'll do each leg. I'll do those even on download weeks. Why? Because I found that, it, to me, um, my athletes have come in through the speed phases of my peaking, Joel, and you know that it's mostly 25 to 50% load. And they're like, Coach, you know, I threw my farthest, right? But I didn't feel like strong and muscular. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. Okay, so we spent four weeks of not going heavy, got it, and then you didn't feel strong and muscular. Okay, but we threw your record PR, got it, okay. And I'm just like, all right. Well, what I did was I just added those in to get that growth hormone, testosterone, adrenaline spike before we do the speed work. And the athletes claim that they feel better, feel stronger because they got that that dump of those hormones. And, and, and they're kind of right, to be honest with you. I mean – that, that hormonal response is why we lift weights, right? If, if we didn't need that, sprinters would just have to sprint. I mean, I don't know the true benefits of an elite level of sprinting. You know, you read about, oh, Ben Johnson did six, 700 pounds before he, he ran his deal. And, and I'm like, I, I don't see why not. Um, he probably did two sets of, of one or two, right? Uh, it was probably mm-hmm. most would call quarter squats or half squats. And I'm not saying that's bad. That's actually good. He loaded his spine to get testosterone, growth hormone, adrenaline to dump in. Adrenaline will actually help like heal the cells or help them regenerate faster. And um, and I think it's a good thing. So I, I've done it on download weeks. I do it in my speed phases of uh, peaking to help the athletes stay feel strong like they're doing something. Um, you know, where, again, my throwers, I've reflected on them a lot where they just like, hey, I threw a lifetime PR, but I just didn't feel strong. And I'm like, oh. Okay, maybe you're not supposed to feel strong, but but I was able just to offset with one like one or two sets of that before a workout of the overcoming isometrics, especially with the legs to get a huge adrenaline, testosterone response and growth hormone. And and then uh, they finish their training session uh, with all speed stuff and they feel pretty good, ready to go. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I forget. So I was just talking with someone else not too long ago about that that same idea of using the the isos as in the deload week as well because there's no muscular stress, and uh, and that's uh I, that was interesting that you you brought that up as well. But I I also like that you said like the, the strong effect on the nervous system. It makes me think of Bill Hoffman who did that stuff back in the '60s with his weightlifters and like. He, he realized you, you still have to do weightlifting. You can't just do this stuff. Like, it's not going to wire in. <laughs> it just gets no. your, your system fired up. Well, and, you know, it could make you worse over time. That's what people, you know, it's like specificity is so important. Well, it's like, you know, I refer to Hank, how specific sports is. Um, you know, Hank, he had uh, Nellie Coonan, I believe, in uh, – she, you know, she always got caught in the last hundred and to make a long story short. So he worked hundred one twenties, one fifties for her hundred yard dash to, to work the speed endurance. And he'd broken up her hundred. He made her, her second hundred two tenths faster or her, the last 50, two tenths faster in her hundred. So he thought it was successful. 
But by doing all that extra training with the, the top end speed, he slowed her acceleration down two or three tenths. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? So, so he lost a tenth. He did make this better. But that's when you're talking the world-class athlete, they're a different monster because it's got to be so specific is the hard part that people don't understand to make an elite-level athlete. And what works for an elite-level athlete, Joel, I'm about to go train my, my 12-year-old son, right, in the gym. And I can do anything and he gets better. Right? <laughs> it doesn't matter. If that's a world-class shot putter, I could I, with the same workout, it would ruin him, right? It would ruin him. And that's what people have to understand when you get to elite-level sports. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Once you get up there, it it becomes that razor wire, and but that, that's part of the fun of it, I think, for a lot of people. But man, does it get hard to to squeak gains out once you get to that elite level? Oh, brother, it's tough. Uh, hey, last question, maybe just real more of a in a nutshell speed round question. But uh, has your you talk about Ben Johnson and sprinting, and has your um, opinion or ideas on on heavy strength training, like going over ninety percent? Like the the heavy the heavy day type ideal has that changed at all over time with kind of some of the new information that you've uh, been aware of in the last decade or so or, well, or still kind of similar idea. Um, I do ninety percent. I might go eighty five if the kids are a little tired. But in the summer, like I, I think Joel, um, I, I did a story of un, untraining um, on my YouTube channel of an athlete who who got worse at eleven sets and uh, eleven. 10 or 11 tests that the national team did. But a long story short, like I've actually went to super maximal methods to get even greater results, Joel. Uh, and when I say that, like my athletes will do super maximal, uh, 110, 120% on Monday and Friday with a safety bar, single leg squat. Now, when I say this, I, they, they hold on to a bar. They're doing single leg safety bar split squat, basically, Joel. And I used my throwers uh, two years ago. We, we just basically did this. We did safety bar single leg squat. We pulled squats. And we're talking about a group of men that, that squat 600 pounds, right? Mm-hmm. We pulled squats, did that, safety bar single leg squat. And they were pushing 700 plus pounds on a single leg squat with that. With that lift. And this is, to me, this is one of the most adaptive lifts I've ever dealt, especially going super maximal. So, yes, you know, these kids pull 700 out. Uh, one of my elite throwers at the highest level, Sean Donnelly, uh, he he did an 800 single leg safety bar squat. So you're going down eccentrically and, and isometrically you're holding it, and then you need people to help you lift that up. Okay, that's super maximal. And I'll be honest with you, that group of throwers went up 60 pounds on their back squat without back squatting over the, the uh, series of eight weeks. Oh, wow. And you're talking strong people already, right? You're not talking mm-hmm. high school kids. We're talking men that, that, you know, six foot to six, four, you know, in the realms of 240 to, to 290 probably. And they're already strong and they move a lot of weight. But when they did that super maximal method, um, they were pretty, you know, we got 60 pounds on their back squat. Now they, they went up some more after that, but I'm just telling you, that's one of the best lifts in regards to strength adaptation and size and and we're getting some pretty good results and we dexa scan our kids to show that 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 lift causes huge adaptations now i'm not saying that's the only lift that we do because we do a lot of lifts but but we're getting some pretty crazy results going super maximal all right well so hey sounds good man uh well that's all i got for today for you cal but uh i'll let you go so you can go train your uh train your kid and uh, get that going but yeah, th- thank you again Probably for your time. Run a, yeah, run a heart rate variability test on him. Oh yeah. Also another, I got the Omega Wave two. Um, then I just I just ordered a, a couple other devices. So uh, some days he's had as much as eighty thousand dollars worth of equipment <laughs> run a test on him before we train. So he doesn't know what's going on. He just thinks it's cool. Yeah, so. I get some force plates and yeah, some yeah, some opto yeah. jump in there and yeah. Yeah, the whole deal. So I love it. All right, it. thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it that marks the end of another episode of the just fly performance podcast thanks for tuning in with us today we really appreciate you listening if you enjoyed it don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on itunes or stitcher we'd really appreciate it it's always good to have cal on the show and we'll be back next week with another great guest In the meantime, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. We'll see you all next week.